0: Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. Sorry this one's a few days late. We've been struggling to keep up with things around here between my work with the new book and keeping up with my teaching. As I've mentioned on the show as well, I'm also coaching a seven and eight year old baseball team, which is a real joy, but also keeping me busy. The good news for the podcast is that there's a lot of exciting developments in the works, which I'll be sharing with you over the coming months. But just to give you one teaser, though, and you know I love a good teaser, while I enjoy all these straightforward interviews and we will keep doing them, we're also exploring the possibility of doing some long-form, multi-part episodes with deeper dives into health and healthcare stories here in Ohio. So I'm hoping we can build this in partnership with organizations we already collaborate with, including the Center for Community Solutions and the Ohio Journal of Public Health. Speaking of Community Solutions, I want to put in a plug for an interesting piece Patty Carlisle at Community Solutions posted on their website the other day, on this whole chat GPT artificial intelligence stuff. It's worth your time, and we've linked to it in the show notes, so check it out. Stay tuned for the bigger developments with the show as well. But even while we're growing, we've got business to do today. On today's show, I'm doing something I've wanted to do for a long time, namely to talk with different health professionals to learn a bit about what they do. Obviously, as listeners know... On the show, we've had dentists, optometrists, nurses, physicians, and many others. But we rarely take the time to just ask what people do and what the major issues in their professions are. I do just that today in my conversation with Paul Hudson, current president of the Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors. I'm certain you're going to enjoy this conversation. And just a reminder before turning to my conversation with Paul to please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Consider giving us a review or a bunch of stars. And if you can, consider kicking in $3 a month through Patreon so we can continue to build the show. You can find the Patreon link at prognosisohio.com, where you can also read the show notes for today's episode. Okay, now to my conversation with Paul Hudson. Hey Paul, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start for listeners, but also admittedly for my own edification. Uh, But just having you talk a little bit about what genetic counselors do, uh, what kind of training do you have and what are the general contours of this job? Sure, absolutely.
1: So yeah, so genetic counseling, uh, it's a, in the grand scheme of medical careers, relatively new. Um, I think the first training program, Probably opened up in the 60s or 70s, and it really has taken off in the last 15 to 20 years as a profession. Uh, Genetic counselors require an undergrad degree and then a two-year master's program. Uh, So it is a two-year training program specifically for genetic counseling. And you are a graduate
0: of The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. (laughs) All right, all right. And, and and the actual work you do, I mean, what does it look like on a day-to-day? Yeah, so
1: most people would describe genetic counselors as, you know, genetic healthcare professionals. So the idea is you are there to sort of translate really complicated genetic topics to patients and discuss things about genetic health, genetic diagnoses, family history, answer questions they might have, and then coordinate genetic testing and facilitate results disclosure. Um, There are many different types of specialties. I personally was a maternal fetal medicine genetic counselor for four years. So that was often seeing patients during their pregnancy and talking about the risk or the presence of genetic disorders in the baby during the pregnancy.
0: So you kind of hit on on it already there. I I knew going into this, you do a lot of work, especially in the prenatal area. And I guess let's focus in there for a moment. So what are the kinds of common, you know, conversations you have. What are the topics that arise? What are some of the issues that you have to work through with the the folks you're working with?
1: Yeah. So I'm no longer a prenatal genetic counselor, which I can talk about too, uh, my new position. But when I was a genetic counselor in clinic for four years, you know, typically as a prenatal genetic counselor, you're talking about, again, the possibility of genetic disorders in the fetus during the pregnancy. So oftentimes you're talking about doing blood testing for genetic disorders like Down syndrome, maybe more severe disorders like trisomy 18 or trisomy 13. Um, You might be taking a patient's family history because they have a family history of a disorder and they wonder if the current pregnancy could have that disorder. So oftentimes you're talking about very serious health problems during a pregnancy and you might have very heavy, um, what we call psychosocial Conversations about how that might affect the baby, how that might affect the patient and their family.
0: So these conversations you're having, to, to what end are you having them? So people are, in the prenatal case, they're expecting. Right. So is this about planning? I know that this is, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, this intersects with questions about reproductive choice. Exactly. In some cases. So wh- what are the kinds of um, questions that people have? Why do they... What do they want to do with the information that you're helping them to understand? Yeah, there's many different possible reasons why someone
1: might want to know. And ultimately, the goal of the genetic counselor is to provide the information to help facilitate that decision making. So one sort of tenet that you encounter in your genetic counseling training is non directiveness, basically, not directing the patient one way or another, but providing them in the information uh, in a way so that they can make the best decision for them. So that might be, you know, coordinating diagnosis of Down syndrome so that they could, so that patient and maybe their family could prepare for the delivery of a baby with Down syndrome and decide, you know, do we wanna get that baby started in certain programs earlier, make sure that they have appropriate care and uh, additional services at school. It may be in regards to reproductive choice. So when providing information about genetic disorders, one thing that's always mentioned is some patients may use this as information that factors into their decision regarding whether or not they'd like to continue the pregnancy or if they would choose termination of pregnancy. It may be adoption
0: of an affected newborn as well. So before we turn to the the abortion question and the reproductive choice question, are there also in some cases... decisions that can be made in terms of prenatal treatments and things like that that can actually start or early interventions and things like that in utero. That's a great question.
1: In utero therapies are the future. So I think we'll start to see those really, really develop. There are some in utero treatments uh, for certain birth defects. So surgical repairs performed in utero that require a fetal care center. Um, There's a fetal care center in Cincinnati, for example, which is really, really amazing. Um, So there are certain interventions that can be done prenatally. Most are interventions right after birth. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, there's a genetic disorder called spinal muscular atrophy it's sort of like a muscular dystrophy that affects babies and most babies with that disorder if untreated unfortunately pass away within the first year of life there is a new medication a genetic therapy called Zolgensma, that can be given as soon as humanly possible after birth before symptoms onset to actually delay that symptom onset and have it progress much much slower so amazing new treatments and therapies but knowing ahead of time is
0: key Right. And you say that the in utero stuff is really the future. I mean, this sounds like a, an emerging area of science. Yeah. I, mean, I have no idea. I don't read this stuff. Yeah. But luckily you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I mean, it's it's interesting to follow, you know, kind of where we are now and then also the horizon of yeah. what we want to be able to do. Yeah. I know that there are
1: some uh, current research trials for in utero therapies for a genetic blood disorder called alpha thalassemia, and I'm sure those will continue. I know there's active research into if there are therapies for Down syndrome, for example, that could, um, you know, maybe alter the level of intellectual disability or help with the risk for heart defects. There's so many different things that I think we'll continue to see over the years.
0: So, as we've already mentioned, genetics play an important role—you uh, know, like it or not—within the larger politics of abortion in the U.S. and within in Ohio, in our case here. Uh, you know, folks tend to focus on the phenomenon known as selective abortion. You know, you've learned something about uh, the the genetic disposition of a fetus, and that might um, lead you to decide to abort or, or not to. Sometimes this is evoked, especially with regard to gender selection and things like that. Right. So I, I guess I just want to get you to talk a little bit about you know, how you have those conversations, the ethics of those conversations a bit, but also how, how has the Dobbs decision changed what you do as a genetic counselor? And for listeners who may not know, the Dobbs decision was the decision in 2022 that overturned Roe versus Wade. Yeah,
1: that's an excellent question. So I've got kind of two answers there, like a two-pronged answer, I guess. So These conversations in clinic regarding termination um, can be very difficult. Uh, It's very important that the option is offered. Um, You know, I think most genetic counselors will agree that it should always be brought up as an option for that patient so they're aware of their rights and the choices that they have. Um, It has to be non-directive. So we're always very careful to say we would never tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. There is no right decision. It's ultimately up to you or your family what would be the best decision. And we're just here to let you know what your options are. But then finally, you have to be very careful to be within the law as well. So there are laws within Ohio that honestly change very frequently as there are different court injunctions, things
0: overturned, the Dobbs decision, things can change very rapidly. You don't say abortion (laughs) law is changing fast in Ohio. I mean, every six weeks we have a new legal case. And right now, um, A lot of people think that abortion's illegal when it's not. And actually, people don't know even what the current state of things is. It's exactly right. And it can be very hard to find
1: out, even as a genetic counselor sometimes, what the current status is and legally what you're able to offer. So I think after the Dobbs decision, you saw genetic counselors working very closely with those clinics in their area. Because trying to find that information online was almost impossible. It almost came down to at the end of my tenure at um, the hospital I worked at I would just call the clinic and just say what is the current status what can I offer this
0: patient who's considering this as an option because they would be the most up-to-date in some cases we're not even allowed to talk about abortion in this country anymore because in state to state but where are we in Ohio currently I know you just said that you you always want to be careful about what it is now but here we are in the you know mid-January yeah you know I was a
1: clinical genetic counselor. I now work for a laboratory, so I'm not counseling patients at this time in the state of Ohio. So yeah. I feel comfortable touching on some of these subjects. Maybe if I was still counseling patients in the state of Ohio, I don't know how comfortable I would be getting into this, this sort of conversation. Interesting. Um, but, you know, I think it's just something that we have to keep up with. What I encountered um, was that it, these changing laws and the Dobbs decision significantly contributed to burnout. Because genetic counselors are dealing with these very heavy cases, discussing very heavy decisions, burnout or compassion fatigue, as we call it, is something we often encounter where we feel like we can't keep up and keep doing the job as good as we were. And uh, I found myself very frustrated with the changing laws and my inability to keep up. And I do think it contributed to burnout and and was part of my decision in transitioning my role to um, be
0: a non-clinical genetic counselor. Really interesting. You know, yeah. so many people around the country have changed what they do, changed jobs, moved. You know, I, I know um, an obstetrician in Texas who had to leave Texas. Yeah. Just didn't feel like she could even, you know, work uh, in good faith with her patients anymore, which is extremely sad because we need people to stay in these positions. But right, right now, here in Ohio and states around the country, you know, the the policy changes are forcing these really hard decisions on people who really care about their patients. Right. Yeah. It's very, very difficult.
1: It's difficult to navigate and it can absolutely lead to burnout.
0: So as I prepared to have this conversation with you about something I don't know a lot about, which is I try to do my homework, I spent a bit of time looking around uh, genetic counseling websites yeah. and uh, I'll just put it bluntly, they the, the workforce looks extremely white. You're now president of the Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors, and I know that this is an issue you care about. Um, it's not just an issue from this kind of standard diversity and inclusion perspective that we want a diverse population. But in genetics in particular, there's such pervasive mistrust, especially in vulnerable and minority communities. So let me just put the big question to you. What are what, what is the profession doing to become more diverse to be able to meet the needs of the patient population? This is a huge issue. And I am so glad that you brought it up because it's definitely something that
1: I'm very passionate about. Um, you're exactly right. You see that the vast majority of genetic counselors are white. Um, interestingly, the vast majority of genetic counselors are cisgender female uh, and straight. So you do see a very particular sort of um, you know, white population and heteronormative population, and it's definitely something that um, many genetic counselors are looking to change. Um, the good news is is that there are several initiatives, um, but it is something that I wanted to continue to push as a genetic counselor, and in particular in my role uh, within the Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors. Um, so, genetic counselors um, as a whole nationwide do have the option of being a part of the National Society of Genetic Counselors (NSGC), which most genetic Counselors are. And the NSGC does have several initiatives in regards to diversity, um, equity, justice, and inclusion. And I think where we really see the need to uh, promote those efforts is in recruiting for genetic counseling programs, right? You have to go through a genetic counseling program to become a genetic counselor. And so we need to start there. And we need to start prior to that to get people of all ethnicities, all backgrounds, um, all orientations, and genders interested in this uh, profession.
0: But you know, so what do we do to make this work? And and, yeah. and I just say that directly because you know I'm I, I'm in an institution that has all sorts of stuff they say about diversity and inclusion, and you got to figure out which which parts are real and which yeah. parts are not. And yeah, you know, we've just got some new data, for example, in in medicine. Um, you know, you look back ten, fifteen years, in some of these initiatives. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna really work on workplace diversity, and they, they haven't moved the needle at all. Yep. Medical school, for example, is becoming more diverse, but the physician workforce is not really. So, how, how do you, you know, what are some of the actual barriers that we're talking about to overcome, aside from the kind of outreach and yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah. So
1: one barrier is something that you already mentioned, which is the history of genetics, genetic research, and genetic therapies within uh, patients who are of diverse backgrounds in these vulnerable populations. Most famously, uh, Henrietta Lacks, for example. Yes. Yeah. So Henrietta Lacks, of course, uh, is an excellent example. What you actually find out is if you go back and do research, the genetic counseling movement originally kind of had its first development within the eugenics movement. So it's something that is very important that genetic counselors be taught that as part of their training to know where genetic counseling started, how it's changed and where it continues to need to go. As far as How do we address this? How do we address distrust? And how do we diversify this? You know, we have several ideas within the OAGC, Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors. So one of our three goals for 2023 uh, is to promote diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion efforts within the state of Ohio. One way that we want to do that is we want to put together a DEJI, Diversity, Equity, Justice, and Inclusion, task force, uh, including genetic counselors in the state of Ohio, but also genetic counseling students in the state of Ohio, because we think it's the genetic counseling students who are currently going through training in Ohio that can tell us what the universities are doing good to recruit people from these different backgrounds and what's not working. What are they encountering? What microaggressions are they encountering? What are they encountering from supervisors, professors, and patients, as well as other providers in their clinics, like OBGYNs, doctors, nurses, et cetera. So what's working and what's not working so we can go back and try and improve things because I
0: really think it's the students from these backgrounds that are going to be able to tell us that. Yeah, And if it's like medicine, you know, there's a lot of focus on admissions, recruiting admissions. The problem is when you look at the experience of being a student after admissions, a lot of, of URM folks underrepresented minority folks in particular, they fall off. Um, They don't feel comfortable. You mentioned microaggression. So we need to also figure out who completes these programs, but then also who goes into the profession itself afterwards. Right, Right. I actually had an experience talking with a student who said,
1: you know, I felt like there were all these efforts to make sure that people from diverse backgrounds were coming to programs. And then I got there and I had felt like they had no idea what to do with me. Like they felt like they got me there. And I ended up having, you know, some some poor experiences. So that's something we absolutely want to prevent. And we have to go to the students to find out what needs to change, I think.
0: Are you wrestling, or not you, but the, the people who are educating the next generation of genetic counselors, are they really wrestling enough with the history you pointed to? I mean, medicine has the same history. Dentistry right. has the same history, right? Uh, are they wrestling enough with that history and sort of like being open about the eugenicist sort of piece and and talking about the, you know, Tuskegee and the whole history of sort of, you know, research ethics. Yeah.
1: I found in my training that that was something that was addressed and covered. I think it will, of course, vary from university to university and professor to professor, but I really value that, you know, taking a look at what happened so that we don't allow history to repeat itself because we know that can often happen Mm -hmm. in all different elements of history. Um, And so, you know, I think that's something that is being addressed and something that can be very powerful to think about when you're sitting in front of your patient who's from a vulnerable background, for example. What have they encountered before? What sort of things have gone horrible in their medical care and genetics care? And how can I address that to give them a better experience? Same for students as well.
0: So the Affordable Care Act, at least in my view, but I think empirically, I'm right, <laughs> it took us pretty far uh, in guarding against discrimination in health care. I mean, it, it kind of checked a couple of boxes that were of, of concern. But it seems to me the genetic information in particular, if it got into the wrong hands, um, it'd just be an absolutely devastating and powerful source of discrimination. So what kind of issues come up? Uh, in your work in this area, in your training? And what's the profession doing also? Because as genetic information gets more powerful, the risk of discrimination kind of gets more powerful with it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I encountered it a little less in prenatal genetics, because in prenatal genetics, you're often talking about fetuses, with health problems that are guaranteed to happen. But oftentimes genetic counselors will be talking about genetic predispositions to cancer, heart disease, things that will affect an adult later in life or predictive genetic testing. Or things that insurance companies will look at as Expensive. You're exactly right. Yeah. So that's something that genetic counselors, particularly within cancer and um, cardiac or neurogenetics, will often address. What about risk for Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, neurodegenerative disorders? Um, So I might not be as much of an expert as those genetic counselors are. I can tell you that there is an act that was passed, I want to say, in like 2008. I could be wrong. But we'll check it out. Yep, yeah, we'll thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fact check. Um, it's called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And my understanding is that does prevent discrimination... On the basis of predisposition to a genetic disorder from employers of a certain size, I believe, mm-hmm. as well as health insurance if the employer is of a certain size. Um, but it does not protect against life insurance. And so it does help us in some ways. It does prevent, you know, maybe some employers from firing an employee because they know they're at risk to develop cancer um, or from health insurances from not providing coverage because they're at risk to develop heart disease later in life. But life insurance, uh, you could have life insurance opt not to cover you or raise the rates significantly because of a genetic predisposition. So I think moving forward, um, you know, one thing that genetic counselors will have to tackle is, you know, is there an ability to lobby for updates to that to prevent discrimination from life insurance companies or maybe health insurance or employment status for all employers, regardless of employer size
0: or company size? what about the gay gene? Where are we with the gay gene? I mean, that was a big conversation years ago. And I mean, I'm saying this kind of like laughingly because the conversation was always sort of like pitched as this, I don't know, uh, this exploratory thing, but you know, is there, is this still something that people talk about or the information that you have to, that you're asked by, you know, expecting parents or people you work with? That's an excellent question. And actually, it's something that I will
1: often think about as a genetic counselor who's part of the LGBTQ uh, community. I did encounter that sometimes in clinic when I was seeing patients. Oftentimes, you'll see it when talking about Klinefelter syndrome. So Klinefelter syndrome is a genetic disorder that's often screened for prenatally as part of routine blood work. It's also called XXY syndrome. So typically males with an extra X chromosome and you'd often have patients say, "Oh, is that the gay gene?" Mm-hmm. or "Oh, so he's going to be gay?" or "Oh, so he'll be like a girl." And you know, some of these questions that they're asking because it's something that they don't want to happen. And so that could be a difficult conversation to have, especially when you as the genetic counselor are part of that community, to say, "Well, no, <laughs> you know, that's not what this causes" and um you know, kind of address it in hopefully a way that makes them feel comfortable while kind of taming your own internal feelings and thoughts. But also, you know, still making sure that you're being respected as a genetic counselor and not letting that conversation get further to a point where you would be extremely disrespected. Right. That's
0: (laughs) got to be part of the training
1: too. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It is something that patients will sometimes ask about. It's something that I think genetic counselors kind of think about in the back of their mind. And I think LGBTQ genetic counselors, just speaking for myself, it's something that I think is very interesting, but then something I also have to ask myself, gosh, if we found out that that was a gene, is that something that we do want to be offering testing for? Or if it was discovered, would there be a rush to have that tested for prenatally as a predictive test? Could there be discrimination in utero because of something like that? It's very,
0: very interesting. So now you're president of the Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors. Congratulations! Thank you so much. You and I were talking about the—we uh, were joking about your crown and your your cape, uh, which apparently have not arrived yet. <laughs> They're on their way. Yeah, but uh, you know, as you think about this this year, where you're in this role, and and um, you know, kind of. It gives you an opportunity, it gives you a platform. Are there any issues in particular, you know, usually presidents of organizations come in and they're like, I want to accomplish one or two things and you have your kind of agenda. What are some of the things you hope to tackle this year? Um, And I I would also just like to know if if you could wave your magic wand or put your cape on or whatever um, and accomplish one or two things this year, maybe a policy change, maybe something like that what would it be? I mean, what would you do if you could only have one or two? Yeah. So this is perfect timing because I actually just got together
1: with our board of directors a couple weeks ago to discuss our goals for 2023. And so we recently put that together. Um, and it was really, really nice working with the board because I can be a little uh, like pie in the sky. Like here's mm-hmm. 25 things that would be amazing. And we're going to do all of them. You're going to cure cancer this year? Exactly. Right? That was on there. No. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there were lots of things I would love to do, but Working together with the board um, really helps us kind of have all these different perspectives and narrow it down to a couple things we want to address. And so I already kind of touched on it. Diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion is huge. So that's something, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd love to say, okay, we're going to have more diverse applicants. We're going to have diverse applicants because they feel comfortable with the field of genetic counseling. They're going to get in, they're going to have wonderful experiences and then they're going to stay in the state of Ohio. Like that would be the dream. That's difficult, right? Because we can't always, well, we can't control at all some prior experiences that people have had. We can hope to improve the field, increase training within the genetic counseling programs to promote better care for people from vulnerable backgrounds so that people from those vulnerable backgrounds will have better experiences and in turn be interested in genetics and apply to become genetic counselors. And then we need to work really closely with the programs to say, okay, the Ohio Association of Genetic Counselors can provide some sponsorship, some support, some financial support and some work support to tackle some goals that you might have as programs that previously you haven't been able to address. How can we help to get more diverse students that improve their experiences. So those are on my goal list and that would be the
0: one if I could just snap my fingers and have done would would be excellent. Yeah, but as you as you noted, you know, we're dealing with histories here. Exactly. We're dealing with trauma and experience and all of that. And that's, you know, too many places I think thought they could you know, put out a a statement of inclusion or something, yep. and like, okay, did that? We're we're good. Yeah. But it turned out um, that we're looking at a, a much longer period here. That's what I was going to say. No matter what we do this year, we won't see
1: the effect by the end of the year. But I hope what we can do is look back in a couple years and say, oh wow, I really do think that helped. Looking at the genetic counselors in Ohio five years from now, we see in increase an uptick in the diversity of students who are in the Ohio State, Cincinnati, Case Western programs. Maybe there'll be other programs in a couple years. And then we just see more diverse genetic counselors
0: in the state of Ohio. Great. Well, Paul, thanks for, you know, coming to my dining room and having a conversation with me. It was nice nice to meet you and um, you'll be following your work this year and hopefully have you back, uh, you know, in the near future. Perfect. And if people are interested, if they just Google Ohio
1: Association of Genetic Counselors, you got to watch out because the Ohio Association of Garden Clubs
0: might pop up. The other (laughs) OAGC. You say that that as though that would be like some kind of uh, traumatic experience that you discovered. Usually it's something a little (laughs) seedier than that that you happen upon. (laughs) Our nemesis, the Ohio Association of Garden
1: Clubs. No, but uh, just take a look at the website. There's more information there. And if you're interested in genetic counseling, reach out. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much.
0: This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Don't forget to check out our show notes, which include a bunch of links to help you better understand some of the topics we addressed in the interview. To do that and also to check out an archive of past episodes, visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a proud member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. In the meantime, we just want to say thanks for listening.